Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and still less ukulele, and less on time. In this episode, you love IPA, I love IPA, the craft beer loving parts of the world love IPA. So let's dig into what makes some of the best West Coast IPAs out there. Today I'm talking with Julian Trago of Long Beach's Beachwood Brewing Company about how he makes his IPAs. Now, why should you listen to Julian? Well, he was a multiple award-winning home brewer back when I first knew him, and has since won numerous JBF and World Beer Cup awards, including Medium and Large Brew Pub of the Year. So sit back and get hoppy. But first, a message from our sponsors. And by the American Homebrewers Association, host of HomebrewCon Online, a virtual gathering of homebrewers happening this June 18th through 20th. With an all-star lineup of speakers, HomebrewCon Online is an opportunity to enhance your brewing skills and knowledge, all from the comfort of your own home. Tune in for live seminars, demonstrations, virtual expos, meetups, and happy hours. Learn more and register at homebrewcon.org. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring Artisan Malt House Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout, Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Well, welcome back, everybody, and thank you for listening to those messages from our fine, fine sponsors. As always, if you interact with any of them, make sure you tell them that you heard about them here on The Brew Files. But enough of that. Let's get to the thing that you're really here for, which is talking about beer. And if you're like most American homebrewers and it seems like most American craft brewers or craft beer aficionados, there's really just one thing that we mean when we say craft beer. The one thing that rings true in almost everybody's head, I-P-A. 
Now, I could sit here and I could talk to you about IPA because I love it, but I figured we'd actually have somebody on the show who knows what they're talking about when it comes to IPA, and I figured I'd bring my good friend Julian. Julian, say hi to everybody. Hey, hello, everyone in beer land. Andrew, thank you for having me. It's an honor, and uh, I'm, I'm ready to talk about IPA, one of my favorite styles of all time. Well, uh, Julian, why don't you give everybody the, the sort of the basic rundown? How did you get involved in, well, homebrewing? Because I remember you as a homebrewer. And then how did you get started with Beechwood? My roots in homebrewing started in the mid-90s when I was going to school uh, at UC Santa Barbara. And uh, one of my classmates talked about homebrewing. Uh, craft beer was something that was everywhere in Santa Barbara. And I was drinking it from the moment I set foot. Uh, in Santa Barbara. And as soon as he mentioned homebrewing, it was something that piqued my interest. And my parents got me a homebrew kit uh, for the, the holiday break my freshman year. My my first beer was successful. It was a, an American wheat beer. And a couple tries after that, my beers were okay. But I really enjoyed the process. And I enjoyed the creative angles that you could get. And so that's how I started out as a home brewer almost 25 years ago. And it was something I did on and off for a number of years. But when I moved to Southern California in the early 2000s, I was single, lonely, kind of bored. And so I really dove into home brewing in the early 2000s and joined the Long Beach home brewers. Uh, and I think I was like the 35th or 40th member of that club. It was still pretty small back then. But it was it was something that I, I really got into, and it was kind of an extension of my engineering sensibilities. At the time, I was still an engineer, which I've always viewed as a marriage of art and science. And for me, homebrewing was kind of the same thing and brewing in general. And through good fortune and good timing, uh, I formed some friendships with professional brewers in the early 2000s. People like Tommy Arthur, Jeff Bagby, Vinny Chalurzo, and uh, a few others. And I had some good opportunities. And, and it was kind of one of those things. One thing led to another. And I was eventually able to pursue my dream and open a craft brewery, which uh, was Beachwood Barbecue and Brewing in 2011 in downtown Long Beach. Wow, is it only 2011? Because, I mean, it seems like you guys have been around at least presence wise for longer than that. So that's kind of amazing because you guys have grown pretty well because so, you got what the brew pub and a couple of other places now. The reason Beachwood seems to be around for longer than that is it has Beachwood barbecue, the original location that's owned by my business partners in seal beach that opened in uh, like right around the end of 2006. So that's approaching it's well, that's technically in its 14th year of business now. So Beachwood Barbecue existed as a beer-centric barbecue business for a number of years, and then Gabe and his wife, Lena, and I partnered up in 2010 and opened Beachwood Barbecue and Brewing in 2011. A few years after that, we added Beachwood Blendery, which is our dedicated sour facility, also in downtown Long Beach. Well, like literally around the corner. It is literally around the corner. Uh, and then after that, we opened up our production facility in Huntington beach, which is where the bulk of our beer is produced. Now, uh, it's where almost all the cans come from, uh, where most of our core beers are made. Uh, and then after that, we opened a satellite tap room in garden Grove last year. But, uh, yeah, so the Beachwood enterprise is, is technically, uh, five locations that serve beer. 
uh, three of which produce beer. Almost as confusing as uh, port brewing, pizza port, and all that with the aforementioned Tommy Arthur. Oh, totally, totally. Yeah. I keep losing track of that whole enterprise. It's amazing. Well, and you're right, because I remember Beachwood Bar- or Beachwood Down Seal Beach, they got known, I think, really early on because, of course, this is before Taplist IO and all the tap management programs existed that could put your tap list up on the web. You know, they had the the camera pointed at the beer board. So nice little webcam. <laughs> it was uh, it was dubbed the hop cam and I, we still call it the hop cam. And I think that was absolutely Gabe's brainchild. And I think he may have been one of the first, if, if not the first person in, in Southern California to do it. I remember in the early days of webcams, occasionally seeing a webcam at a big brew pub. I remember Red Hook used to have that for one of their brew pubs. But Beachwood Barbecue was also one of the first places uh, to feature rotating taps. And when Gabe first started out, uh, he wasn't always able to get the same IPA week after week. And he would ask his distributor, "Okay, well, you're out of that beer. What? What other IPA do you have? And it was kind of one of those things that naturally took form uh, like, oh, okay, well, you've got a different IPA this week. Let's try that one. Oh, you're out of IPA this week, but you've got some crazy smoked Doppelbach. Let's put that on tap. And so it was one of those things that grew naturally out of beer availability and curiosity. But Beachwood became known for having a very curated uh, rotating tap selection. Which for the time in Southern California was a relatively rare thing. People tend to forget that for as big of a city as L.A. and the L.A. environs are, it was a rather beer poor area for a while. It, it really was. And it might have been the second place in Orange County to ever do that behind, I would want to say, Hollingshead. Let's get into the brewing questions, though. And I'm going to ask you what I think is probably my favorite question, which is omitting the word balance. Describe your philosophy as a brewer. Mm-hmm. Flavor first. Always think of flavor first. That is what, whatever style of beer, or if it's not a style of beer that, uh, you know, not a defined prescribed style of beer, I always think of flavor first. How do I want this beer to taste? From there, I will layer on, well, what aromas will complement these flavors? Uh, what mouthfeel will complement and carry these flavors? Uh, what yeast and other ingredients will help me get to that flavor pr- profile? So flavor first is my brewing philosophy, irrespective of balance. Balance comes into the mix as a result of all those things. I think that may be the second fastest answer ever on the program. I think the only one who beat you was uh, Roger, who said hops. <laughs> Roger Davis. <laughs> okay. Yep. Yep. He's mastered the art of having, I think, 30 pale ales on tap at one time. And amazingly enough, they all taste different. So <laughs> I think that's the real skill. <laughs> I know. No, I love Roger. Let's take that extension of, you know, flavor first and let's apply that into the topic at hand, which is uh, IPA. So let's break it down. When you're, when you're thinking about an IPA, what is it that you want in an IPA? I want a lot of concentrated hop flavors and aromas. Uh, I don't necessarily want crushing bitterness, but I want assertive, moderate to assertive bitterness. But rich, fully developed, concentrated hop flavors and aromas are my main, whether it's uh, IPA, double IPA, annually a triple IPA. 
Well, now, what don't you want in an IPA? I don't want a lot of malt flavor. Mm-hmm. Now, are you are you of the school of it, all Pilsner malt and nothing else? Or we certainly do that for some of our uh, IPAs. Uh, other ones, there's a there's a mix of Pilsner malt and two row. Uh, the a lot of our IPAs are simply two row and maybe one maybe one specialty malt. But um, I kind of disabused myself to the idea that IPAs needed to be quote unquote balanced by crystal malt. I gave up that notion. A long time ago, which when I first started brewing, when you and I were kind of cutting our teeth as home brewers, you remember that was um, that was almost uh, kind of the the you know the rule that you couldn't break. Oh, the IPA has to be balanced with crystal malt. Has to be. Yeah, a lot of a lot of recipes from back then would like say C forty or a lot of C sixty. Um, and some of the weirder people even being all the way up into like the C120s, which I never got. But yeah, you'd had a lot of chew to your IPAs. Yeah, which back then, I mean, I, I think it was kind of, it was an extension of, of the original British IPAs. But as American IPA has evolved and, and definitely captured its own identity, especially on the West Coast, um, I, I think things like crystal malt have uh, I- extremely limited space um, in IPA, but but don't at all need to be used. Well, yeah, I mean, and I think you can see that even in the fact, like, I don't think we see very many reds anymore, right? And reds were a crystal heavy style, but now they're gone. Mostly, although we still brew a, a red year round that we serve mostly at our pub, but it's kind of like... It's a 10-barrel batch that we typically brew every two to three months. The other thing I also remember about the time that when you and I were coming up as homebrewers was, I think the hoppiest thing that was on the market, at least the thing I was always warned was the hoppiest thing, was uh, Anderson Valley Hop Otten. And people were like, oh, be careful, that's going to that, that's gonna blow your, your tongue right out of your mouth. So that beer has so much uh, historical significance for me. Uh, beer is near and dear to my heart that was one of those beers that I remember having in the mid nineties in college. And I, I was sampling everything I could get my hands on. And I remember the first one of those I cracked open. I, it was, I was like, Whoa, wait a second. Something totally different is going on here. This beer is way more concentrated and way stronger than any other, uh, IPA that I've had to date. And I remember looking at the label and it said 7% alcohol. And I was like, that's it. This one's cranked up a notch. (laughs) And that was kind of like the big IPA of the time. But that made such an impression on me. And it made me kind of realize that uh, with, with beer, you kind of with, you know, let's take one particular style like IPA. It kind of goes through index points as you go up in ABV. I think there's a big difference between a 5% pale ale to a 7% IPA to a 9% double IPA. I tend to go into these kind of discrete indexed points uh, because I feel it starts modifying the way the hops come across, the way the flavors and aromas come across. And that beer for me was definitely in a different flavor and aroma category, hop Otten at least. Well, so describe to me that that concept of an index, because that's that's interesting. How do you think hops present differently at, say, five versus seven? You can have a, an incredibly aromatic beer at 5% alcohol. There's no doubt about that. But when you've got the added uh, alcohol of like a 9% double IPA, 
depending on how you dry hop that beer, uh, the, the alcohol carries the aromas differently. It carries the flavors differently on your palate. So that would be uh, an example right there. Let's say you took the same base malt, the same kind of general hop schedule, and you, you brewed a 5% version and then a 9% double IPA version. I think a lot of people would be struck by how different the two beers were, even if just from a raw ingredient standpoint, they were the same. Well, I think that plays into one of the perceptions I've always had of uh, uh, Plenty of the Younger, right, versus Plenty of the Elder. Yeah, I mean, what, Elder is 8, and yep. uh, El Younger is 11, 12, somewhere in that range? Vinny kind of brought it down over the years, but it's it's closer to 10, but it hovers between 10 and 11%. Yeah. And one thing I've always noticed is at least until really like I think about the last two years, my perception of younger was always I felt like it had less hot presence. I mean, it had a lot of bitterness, but it had less hot presence in the nose and in the flavor in comparison to, say, elder. And some of that, I think, is actually because of that ethanol sweetness factor that you get. That's certainly part of it. Also, the way that you hop. Mm-hmm. Uh, high alcohol beer and the solubility of glycosides, which are kind of those hot based sugars that go into solution that mm-hmm. that can play into it. Also, I think one thing that, that Vinny freely admits, but may not be widely known is that the hot bill for younger changes pretty much every year. It's different. I mean, there's very few beers, I think, where you're, you're going to get the hot bill to stay steady from your year. It's a biological product after all. But it's also nice to see that he's continuing to play with that. Mm-hmm. For sure. And actually kind of thinking about that, I think there's even been an evolution in terms of the IPAs that you've been making, because what's the Melrose? Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think you still make Melrose, right? We do. Because I remember Melrose from way back. And I see like a difference between Melrose, at least as I remember it, versus, say, the Amalgamator that we're going to have later. And Mm -hmm. what do you think that shift's been? Uh, for me, I've I've shifted um, away uh, from kind of the same level of bitterness that we used to put in our beers. I've I've shifted our hops to focus more on flavor and aroma. Uh, Amalgamator has no crystal malt in it whatsoever. Uh, Melrose has like half. It's got a, I believe a quarter of a percent of C60 in there, mm-hmm. which is really a remnant from my homebrew days. I, I felt just for the sake of tradition, we put just a kiss in there and it's barely perceptible. But my shift has been uh, less on, on uh, really firm bitterness and more on moderate bitterness and then emphasizing hop flavor and aroma. And I, in recent years, I focused a lot more on uh, water chemistry, mm-hmm. yeast biology, uh, finishing pH of the beer. Uh, we found those are just incredible ways to modify a beer beyond what I, I think most people think of. Well, can you can you give me an example? Like when you're talking pH, for instance, what what are the impacts you see? So we've actually reduced the pH of uh, most of our well almost all of our IPAs. And in that sense, I mean, we've driven them more acidic mm-hmm. and the, the more, this may seem counterintuitive, but the more acidic a beer is, the softer the hops are on the palate. It improves the flavor balance in my opinion. So, uh, our IPAs pre dry hop, 
tend to finish around the pH of 4.1. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then post dry hop, they, because of a lot of people suspect because of uh, nitrogen compounds that are on the hops, um, post dry hop, our pH often creeps up to around 4.5. But what we started noticing is if pH creeps up to, uh, you know, 4.6, 4.7, the beer has kind of an edgier, coarser bitterness in the finish. All, all other things being equal. So we've driven the beers to be a little bit more acidic. And that's kind of something that um, I personally borrowed from lager brewing, mm-hmm. specifically American lager brewing. A lot of people don't realize uh, how acidic a lot of American macro lagers are. Uh, for example, let's just take, uh, let's just take uh, Coors Light, for example. A lot of people don't realize that beer has a finishing ph below four wow around 3.9 or 3.95 and nobody ever has coors light and says oh yeah that beer is acidic Mm -hmm. no they think it's really it's really light and it has a really soft finish well and i think this is also the important point where i keep reminding people ph has no correlation to flavor (laughs) ta if you want to know how sour something is it's a ta measurement not a ph measurement (laughs) Or I should say how sour tasting something is. That's a, that's a really, really good point. Cause those beers are fairly acidic, but they have very little titratable acidity. I, I keep threatening that one day I'm going to get people into, we're going to have a whole lesson on TA just to drive home that point, but I haven't gotten there yet. Um, well, so when you're doing, when you're controlling the beer pH, I mean, are you, are you actually like doing a, a post ferment acidification if it creeps up too high or are you just trying to control it via water chemistry? We don't typically need to do that. We've certainly done that before, um, but our beers are are fairly consistent um, in terms of, of pH. We monitor our water frequently enough. Our hops are selected. So, for example, the mosaic that we brew Amalgamator with is the same mosaic that we're going to be using all year, same lot. But we typically treat with, uh, for IPA specifically, we'll typically treat with gypsum and phosphoric acid mm-hmm. in the mash. Uh, because we have an ideal mash pH target, and then we will further acidify in the whirlpool with a little bit of lactic acid. It's not much. Now, let me ask, because I'm going to get into something here in a moment uh, that's going to play into this, because you mentioned yeast, and I think the big thing that, everybody been, that everybody's been playing with recently, and I know you guys have at least one hazy. Um, mm-hmm. what, what do you think of the whole hazy trend versus you know the the clear West coast IPA style. There are two completely different beers. And I think for the most part, they're, they're different consumers. I, after having some really good shining examples of, of hazy IPA, I came to kind of understand the style and it was something that I personally resisted out of, I think the sake of uh, tradition and probably a little bit of ego too. But once I surrendered to that and decided, okay, you know what, we're going to brew these because you know, our fans are are asking us to brew these, not, not because they want us to jump on the bandwagon, but our fans are asking us to brew these, these beers because they think we'll be good at it. So we, we owe that to them. And uh, we started brewing hazy IPA and our approach to structuring and designing those beers is very different than West coast IPA. Um, but it's interesting. I think the two are actually prevalent enough that they're starting to influence each other a little bit now 
Well, yeah, I was gonna I was gonna say because one of the things I've I've been noticing is that I mean you mentioned earlier that you've made a move away from sort of firm stonking bitterness, right, and more you know more more hop flavor, more hopper. I've been seeing this more and more with the West Coast IPAs, where I mean it used to be we always joked around in the early two thousands it was the IBU wars. Uh, you know, how, how bitter can you make this beer? But what I'm seeing now, or at least what I'm perceiving, is that we're seeing more and more of these West Coast IPAs or traditional American IPAs get more of that focus on the hop aroma, the hop oil, the the flavor impact as opposed to that bitterness, pushing a little bit more towards, I don't want to say juicy, but a little bit more towards that softer side that kind of, I think, comes from the New England IPA side. I, I'm sure some of that influence comes from that. Uh, I, I think for me, one of the things that um, I, I really do enjoy about uh, a hazy IPA is, you know, the aromas are, are huge uh, if they're done right. They're just super massive. They're super juicy. Um, I think the flavors are cool. I think uh, the uh, the mouthfeel on a hazy IPA uh, makes the drinkability factor very different than a West Coast IPA. Certainly, uh, you know, having a beer that has that much hops in it, that has that little perceivable bitterness, uh, that certainly has a couple brewers, myself included, thinking, you know, what if I back off the the BUs a little bit in my West Coast IPA? Will that leave room for more nuance or does it completely gut the style? And for us, at least for me, I felt it left a little bit more room for nuance. I mean, don't get me wrong, our West Coast IPA is still... Uh, you know, typically clock in around 70 IBUs. So they're not, <laughs> they're not light on the hops. Like when you say that you, you're kind of stepping back a little bit, are you talking like maybe a 10% reduction in, in bitterness or? Um, Amalgamator, when we first brewed that beer, at least on paper, it was around 120 IBUs. And now on paper, it, it's closer to uh, like 71, 72, if you're using the Rager formula. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's about, what, 60% of the uh, the previous toll, so like a 40% reduction? Yeah, so it's it's like a 35 or 40% reduction, yeah. I think the other thing that's changed a lot in West Coast IPA has been these new hops that we have. So, I mean, again, when you and I were coming up, uh, like I remember when Citra first appeared, and it was like, oh, or, or actually even going further back, Amarillo or Simcoe. When those when those uh -huh. first appeared, it was like, oh, these are going to be game changers for the IPA. And now, as you said, Amalgamator is full of mosaic. Mm -hmm. There's this whole new world of hops with all these different flavors that we didn't have previously. How does when okay. you said when you said flavor first? How did that change how you thought? In terms of hops, uh, I, I mean, the first time I really had mosaic in a beer was, I believe, at the CBC in 2010. Mm -hmm. Or 2000, was it? In, yeah, it was in, I believe it was in San Diego in 2010. And Russian River had brewed a beer. I believe it was for the Yakima Chief or the, the Hop Union booth. And it was, a, it was a mosaic pale ale or IPA. And I remember thinking, whoa, I've never had flavors like this in an IPA before at all, flavors, aromas. And so it, it really got me thinking, well, what is possible uh, just by changing the hops, by manipulating one ingredient. So I, in terms of thinking of flavor first, I, I started thinking, I think, more along the lines of what can I do with a single hop? 
how far can you go with uh, single hop IPAs or IPAs that are focused primarily around one hop. How do you do that without it becoming, I mean, literally one note or boring? <laughs> that's why that's why the hop is appropriately named mosaic is it is it really is an amalgam of flavors and aromas it is a broad palette of flavors and aromas there's certainly hops out there that are developed and bred that are kind of a little bit more one-dimensional that don't have as big a, a swath of flavor and aroma mosaic's not one of them mosaic was probably the first hop that proved to people that you could have amazing complexity and diversity of flavors and aromas from one ingredient. And then now we're starting to get into things where we're even studying like hop terroir and its impact. Um, I'm just about to start playing with some old school Chinook, right? You know, everybody's favorite old hop to, you know, really impart some bitterness, but grown in Michigan and apparently has large pineapple flavors. It uh, wouldn't surprise me. Uh, terroir and growing region has such a huge impact. Uh, one, probably one of the best examples of that is Amarillo, mm -hmm. which is grown uh, as far south as Oregon and as far north as northern Idaho. And now it's even grown in Germany. But that is a hop that has so many different expressions. It drives me nuts. <laughs> and depending on where it's grown, it... it you could have a beer and and be like, this is Amarillo. What? I, I think you're, you kind of start to see that a lot of hop varieties, the more that um, acreage spreads and the more different places you see one hop grown, the more divergence you're going to see in its aroma and flavor properties, but especially Amarillo. That's a schizophrenic hop. Totally. Well, and, and speaking of Amarillo, I saw a, a talk by um, uh, Ann Van Hall uh, from DeProof. Mm -hmm. Uh, she gave it mm -hmm. at, at Hoffman Brew School. And yeah, the, the amazing part was talking about, I think it was Amarillo grown in Washington. So in Yakima, Amarillo grown in Idaho and the Amarillo grown in Germany and doing a comparison of the three and oil content wise and sensory impact wise, the hops from Idaho and Germany were closer together than the hops from Idaho and Washington. Wow. And I wonder, I kind of wonder if that's a, I mean, that could be a function of uh of latitude uh hops are very dependent on hours of sunlight that they get which is one reason why they're so far north in the united states and people ask why don't they grow hops in southern california well we get you know an hour to an hour of 15 minutes less daylight in the peak summer months than in yakima washington and northern idaho we had richard smith from the florida hops project on a while back and he talked about the fact in order to get hops to grow in florida they were using giant grow light balloons <laughs> whoa yeah okay <laughs> kind of absolutely crazy but i mean i do think yeah. it's i do think it's interesting that i mean now that we're now that we're worrying about things like terroir or things like what you were just talking about with the ph and then yeast impacts and understanding that different strains will present hops differently um and then, yeah, all, just all of this world of hops, I mean, it makes the IPA, as much as I hate to say that, you know, you go into a place now and it, it feels like almost anywhere that you go, three quarters of the list is IPAs, at least, you know, there's some interesting things that are happening with the hops to be able to make those taste, well, or at least make them worth exploring. For sure. I think you, I, I think hops are incredibly interesting and I would be 
very happy. Uh, you know, I am very happy when I go to a brewery and I'm able to get a whole taster tray of only IPAs and sample through them and say, wow, these all have a common thread, but they're all very different. Yeah. And it's all reflective of a brewer's particular manipulation, their uh, choices that they make both in malt and how they do their processes. Now, you mentioned before that uh, if you were looking at yeast as well. Can you can you give an example of like some of the impacts that you're seeing from different choices? Well, uh, it it's probably a little bit more of an impact when it comes to hazy IPA. Uh, but speaking specifically to West Coast IPA, uh, when I was a home brewer, I mostly used uh, White Labs Cal Ale as my IPA yeast, and a couple times I used Y yeast Ten Fifty Six. And when we first started at the pub, we tried both of those yeasts, but I much preferred the, the performance of uh, White Labs Cal Ale, just the classic 001. And that became our house ale strain, and it is still our house ale strain and still the one that we use in uh, pretty much every West Coast IPA, pale ale, double IPA that we've ever brewed. Um, hazy IPAs are, are a different beast because at least for us, we're looking for a lot more fruit and we're not looking for as much dryness and edginess that Cal Hill gives. And we're looking for yeast strains that, uh, have create some of that biotransformative effect where they are able to feed on hop compounds during fermentation and create, uh, like fruit like esters during fermentation which Cal Ale, I believe, can do to a degree, but not to the same degree as some of the strains that are used in hazy IPA. Well, and then do you have a general philosophy for water chemistry for an IPA? Like, do you do something different when you want to be, not say hazy, but when you want to be like pushing mosaic towards more of the aromatic versus the bitter, do you do something different? Uh, for most of our uh, West Coast IPAs, we have the same water regimen, which gets scaled up based on alcoholic strength. But, for example, the the water treatment for Amalgamator is the same as Melrose, is the same as Citraholic. Um, we go for moderate levels of calcium and I would say moderate, slightly uh, like moderate to slightly high levels of sulfate. Uh, we have lower levels of uh, chloride in our water. It's not, that's not a component that we focus on with IPAs. And then also manipulating things with phosphoric acid in the mash and then lactic acid in the whirlpool uh, is, is important for us. It's not just about the ion content with the salts. It's, it is equally about the pH. Now, when you're stepping up in alcohol, like if you're making a double IPA or or even a triple IPA, you said that you adjust the water chemistry. Is it just acid level adjustments or is it like uh, we're trying to push more sulfate in or? It's typically, it's like in the most general sense, it's proportional to the malt. So if we use 20% more base malt in a double IPA, then we would use 20% more gypsum. But, you know, mash pH and wort pH does start to function a little bit differently with, with higher gravity beer and you have some slightly different buffering effects with higher gravity work, but just a really kind of advanced thing that um, we've kind of figured out uh, empirically, like, Hey, if you scale things up, does like, does everything function linearly? Okay. This doesn't quite function linearly. So maybe 20% malt isn't 20% more gypsum. Maybe it means 23% more gypsum. 
kind of thing. Yeah, we, we just did a water chemistry show not too long ago. And the big explanation to people is water chemistry in a mash is hard to model. It is weird. It's impossible. It's almost impossible to model because I think a lot of people don't realize you can't really get uh, homogeneity within a mash. And this was kind of one of those things that even on um, like uh, even on our brew house, uh, either of our brew houses where we we Vorlauf uh, typically for 30 minutes before we start our, our runoff into the kettle, you would think that that would homogenize all of the wort in the mash bed. It does a pretty good job, but it's it's not precise. And uh, we've seen different uh, mash pHs, um, you know, from two two mashes on the same day, but the same wort pH. And you're like, well, clearly the mash wasn't homogenized the way that we thought it was. And I've talked to brewers at Sierra Nevada, and they've echoed the same thing. They've said, oh, yeah, we we see different pHs in different parts of the mash, depending on when the acid get goes in or when the salts go in and how well things get mixed. There's There definitely can be pockets. Well, and, and yeah, you maybe you have a little pocket of crystal malt over there versus, you know, another pocket that has more pale. Yeah, it's it's very weird. It, it's my, I, In my opinion, it's much easier to analyze wort uh, pH and ion content and wort than it is in the mash. Of course, for most homebrewers, it would be hard for us to do the analysis of the wort, I think. So I don't think most people realize just how much the wort chemistry can be different than what's in your mash chemistry. Mm-hmm. It, it's sort of surprising and baffling. <laughs> it can be. Now, let's uh, let's get back into hops, though, real quick. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm guessing what you're doing uh, whirlpool hopping in addition to kettle hopping and, and dry hopping as well? Yeah, for West Coast IPAs, uh, yeah, we typically have five kettle additions, and or I should say five hot side additions, and then typically one uh, one substantial dry hop. Uh, some of our IPAs get double dry hopped. All of our double IPAs get double dry hopped. Uh, with our hazy IPAs, we we do no hops on the hot side at all. Nothing. So when you say five hop additions on the on the hot side, I mean, we're talking like a bittering charge and then obviously a whirlpool charge would count as a hot side uh, addition. Uh, but it sounds like in the middle there, you're doing kind of more of the old school, you know, here, here's a flavor addition and aroma addition knockout. Yep. In the general sense, yeah. So for amalgamators specifically and Melrose as well, the five hop additions would be uh, whirlpool, bittering, uh, two middle flavor additions, and then uh, a whirlpool, a larger whirlpool addition. With the whirlpool, do you try and do any special tricks where you're whirlpooling off the boil? So it's like, because there's a lot of people talking about, oh, you should try doing whirlpooling at 170 to conserve more oils. Or We do do that for some of our beers. Uh, for something like Amalgamator, we don't. It technically comes off the boil when we send it to our whirlpool vessel. But at the pub, the kettle is the whirlpool some beers where we want to have a little bit gentler bitterness and maybe more hop flavor and aroma than we would cast out to our whirlpool tank and we would inject or drop in some cold liquor to bring down the temperature of the whirlpool and once we get it down to like 180 degrees say that's when we at our whirlpool hops and it does make a difference you're not really going to get much isomerization at that temperature uh, and you do preserve some more of the aromatics, but if you want a beer to be, you know, moderately bitter, then you might, you might not want to hop a beer that way. 
And then you said for your dry hopping, you said your double IPAs are double dry hop, but do you do anything special in terms of timing? Do you have a philosophy about timing? Because, I mean, I mean, you've obviously got old school, hey, put it on two weeks, which I don't think anybody does anymore. Or now, like, hey, do it for seven weeks. And then even now, I've started playing around with doing two days cold to you know change the extraction levels. Yeah, I mean, temperature definitely makes a difference on extraction levels. But I would caution people from doing it too cold. Because I think I think hop creep and enzymatic activity after dry hopping is a very real thing, especially now with hops being processed at much lower temperatures and those enzymes being preserved. I think small amounts of re-fermentation will basically always happen after dry hopping, barring some special circumstances. So I would caution people from doing it too cold to where you might have some kind of latent re-fermentation that spits out some gnarly flavors like diacetyl two or three weeks after you've racked the beer into a keg. But getting back to um, like uh, our, our double IPAs, we one thing that we do that's different probably from most people is we dry hop with pellets in the fermenter and then we also dry hop in the bright tank with pellets and flowers. Do you use the the flowers to kind of serve as a substrate to help drop the pellets out, or, or are you wanting a different character? We're we're looking for a different character, but one of the reasons we use the two in conjunction is uh, the flowers add loft and prevent the the pellets from simply getting saturated and forming a paste. So we still we do these in giant fine mesh nylon bags that go into the bright tank before we purge it with CO2, before we fill it with beer. And yeah, the uh, the hop flowers and the hop pellets for that second dry hop, they add a totally extra different dimension of aroma that I think is very unique. And that's something that I picked up from Jeff Bagby and Tommy Arthur. They used to do that with think almost all their double ipas when they were still brewing at pete support let's see okay so that, that's interesting because then basically because the hops are in the bag the worry is if it's all pellets it'll just form a giant ball of goo and you won't get the oil out into the into the beer which is what you're trying to do and so in a way the the hop flowers not only are giving a different flavor but they also serve as an interrupting medium like like we do with barley husk you can still get everything flowing that's a good that's a good analogy okay very cool any other tips that you want to give people out there for how to make a, a Julian Drago IPA? <laughs> I would say dry hop it. I'm trying to scale down my units here because we typically do two pounds per barrel for the dry hop, which I guess for, for uh, I'd have to do, I, I can't do the math in my head. But we're uh, 1.03 ounces per, per uh, well, gallon. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So right around anywhere from six to eight ounces per five gallon batch. I, I would definitely encourage people to go for a drier beer. I think drier is always better uh, when it comes to IPA. Oxidation is your enemy. That's probably the biggest flaw that I find with homebrewed beers is oxygen exposure just kills hop character and emphasizes malt character. It does all the things that we don't want in an IPA. If people have the chance to invest in equipment that limits or eliminates oxygen exposure, I would I would highly recommend that. For example, there are, you know, I think I've seen, I know this might be, some people might view this as slightly dangerous, but I feel like there are carboy caps that allow you to inject CO2 into the carboy and, and push beer out with CO2 instead of using one of those siphons, which just sucks oxygen into the beer. Yeah, they do make those. Yes, you can do that because I've done that for years. 
And yes, it's dangerous and stupid. <laughs> okay, so do that at your own risk. I claim I claim no liability for that whatsoever. <laughs> but um, I would I would also encourage people to experiment with. I also think clarifying a West Coast IPA is very important. You can do that with Biofine. You can also do it with gelatin. Biofine is the primary clarifier that we use on our IPAs. Gelatin, I use that for years. I use that as a home brewer. It works incredibly well. But Biofine works well also. But the ver- the dosing rate for Biofine can vary widely depending on yeast strain, depending on what hop varieties you're using, and uh, some of our IPAs, because just simply the hop varieties that we're using and polyphenol content require twice the dose of Biofine to clarify them. Ah, you know, that would probably explain a problem I was just having. <laughs> so, yeah, it's kind of, Biofine's a weird thing. If you use too much, you have the same problem as using too little. When in doubt, you can always use gelatin. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's enough yakking and... It's five o'clock somewhere, so I think I want to try this amalgamator that that I have from you. Oh, did I get my amalgamator also? Should we drink together? I think we should. All right. I'm reaching into the fridge here. There it is. (laughs) All right. And now everybody's favorite moment on the podcast. Oh, wait for it. All right. There we go. For real now. Cool. It's one of the world's best sounds. I know, right? Yeah, if, even if I didn't have a beer in my hand, I'd uh, if I heard that sound, I'd start to salivate. So I've I'm, I've I've poured my beer into my LA beer uh, or my LA Brewers Guild uh, chalice here, just to show a little support for LA beer. And I mean, I love the fact I mean, it's definitely nice and clear. But I mean, just that little bit of haze that I expect expect from an IPA with the amount uh, with the amount of hop in this. I mean, it's not mm-hmm. hazy by any stretch of the imagination. But nice little pale gold color. And you said this one has no no crystal malt, right? No crystal. This is just like pills and it's American two row and a little bit of honey malt. Okay. Now I will I will tell you, I am I've been on the record in the past as not normally being a fan of uh mosaic. And I've what I've always warned mm-hmm. people is I'm not really a fan of I think of how most people use it because so many beers that are made with mosaic end up tasting like uh, rotten fruit. And I'm not a fan of it. Okay. <laughs> but this, I mean, you're getting all that piney and herbaceous character that uh, uh, up front with a nice little, mm-hmm. uh, with a nice little, just almost blanket of fruit. A little, yep. a little bit of that, a little bit of that mango papaya, a little bit of that tropical type thing. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, gotta have a taste. Here you go. Yeah, see, I think the I think that little bit of honey malt in there makes a difference. I agree. You get a little bit of something, right? It's a little toasty, but it's not sweet, which is one of the nice things with I think a judicious use of honey malt. Don't overuse it like a lot of homebrewers do. I find that honey malt it does well to accentuate tropical hop flavors. So that's one reason why we use it in amalgamator. And honey malt was something that I first discovered uh, as a home brewer in the early two thousands, and I used it. Uh, I used it in Melrose and I'm trying to remember, like, I don't, I don't know if any commercial IPAs were using honey malt back then, but I remember reading the description and tasting the malt at the homebrew store and thinking, Oh, you know what? I think this would, I think this might go well with some of those peach flavors that I get in Amarillo. I think it might, I think it might work together. 
I can totally buy it. I've been playing around uh, recently with the brew malt from Great Western, which is sort of their their mm. honey malt. Yep. I think it's a little bit more a, a little bit more oomph driven than say the Gambrinus honey malt, which is the one I always think mm-hmm. of. But I like the level that you're at in here because again, it it just gives you something background. Yeah, you're right. It gets a little bit of that a little bit of that fruit salad approach, right? You know, you get that pineapple, you get, and you just get that little extra sweetness. But then the beer, of course, comes off and, you know, finishes out rock solid dry with a, with that nice little gypsum bite in the finish mm-hmm. along with, along with all that bitterness. And the nice thing is, yeah, this is, this is assertively bitter, but not obnoxiously bitter. Correct. Which again, it's a fine line to walk. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I could I could drink a lot of this, and I have been. <laughs> Good man. Yeah. Now, how how long did it take for you to tweak into this recipe? Uh, so this beer, we first brewed this beer, I believe, in 2012 at the pub, mm-hmm. and uh, it was when uh, Mosaic was a tiny little crop that was harvested, and Yakima Chief had a few boxes to sprinkle in California, and we were fortunate enough to get enough mosaic to start brewing amalgamator i want to say every two months or so in 2012 Mm -hmm. but it was assertively more bitter back then the ph the finishing ph was higher but when we brought the beer to huntington beach our production facility and i'll kind of back up a little bit so amalgamator was a beer that we brewed at our pub typically once uh once a quarter and then when we opened our production facility we thought okay what are our two most popular ipas well at the time citraholic and amalgamator and we decided to bring both of those over to the production facility and kind of see which one ended up taking first place in, in sales and here we are four years later, and they both sell equally well. So we're kind of one of those weird places that has two flagship West Coast IPAs. It's kind of funny. But what I noticed brewing the same beer day in and day out is it makes you acutely aware of differences in malts, differences in processes, and it makes you realize really quickly what you do and don't like and what you need to change in your process in order to make things consistent. So Amalgamator started out as 120 IBU beer. It's now a 70 IBU beer. And we've shifted the additions uh, from, you know, kind of the first word side more towards the whirlpool end, more towards the flavor end. Uh, We've shifted the pH more acidic. Uh, The honey malt is reduced from what it originally was. And the, the starting and finishing gravities are a little bit lower, even though the ABV is the same. It's kind of a, a slightly leaner beer and a little bit more delicate than, than it used to be. But that's, that's kind of the evolution of, of Amalgamator. And I remember it was maybe a couple months into our production facility and somebody said, yeah, man, Amalgamator is different than it used to be at the pub. And my response was, I'm glad you noticed. Thank you. That's the point. Well, not to mention the fact, I mean, it's going to change moving between facilities anyway. But yeah, in this particular case, it was a very intentional shift, which is nice. Well, Jules, I have to say thank you for taking the time to sit here and talk to me about IPA. I know we can have My dis- pleasure. We could have discussions about Saison and why doesn't it sell? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no love for Saison. What's wrong with people? Uh, and the, the inside joke for everybody is that, uh, both Julian and I are 
big saison heads and uh, well i remember when you were a humber you brewed a lot of saison and i think you still keep one or two on at the brew pub right we do yeah we've got one on right now see there you go now again boys and girls if you are finding yourself somewhere in the long beach area i would suggest that you run don't walk uh over to the beachwood brew pub there uh, what's on third street right yep you got it a couple, a couple blocks away from the ocean and when you go there, you'll be able to experience, uh, well, I think you're one of the few brew pubs to win GABF uh, Brew Pub of the Year back-to-back. Yes, we uh, we had the honor of winning um, uh, mid-sized brew pub of the year in 2013, uh, large brew pub of the year in 2014 because our barrel wedge crossed the threshold. And then uh, we had the, uh, the honor of winning um, world champion uh, brew pub at world beer cup in 2016 see it's almost like you know what you're doing plus if you actually end up at the the brewery or the brew pub you'll also be able to see the crazy convoluted co2 gas manifold from hell that's right the flux capacitor (laughs) julian thank you for taking the time i appreciate it i'm going to sit here and i'm going to enjoy this beer and for everybody else uh, go out there and make some ipa not that you need my recommendation to make ipa you guys are already doing it but hopefully you got some tips out of this and uh yeah go have some good beer All right. Thanks, Drew. Goodbye, everybody in beer land. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this exploration of IPAs. What makes them hoppy? What makes them sing? What makes them dance? What did you think of Julian's idea of index points and also his revelation about pH? Let me know. Now, remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at ESP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum out there. And, of course, you can always find us at www.experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, click the AHA, Amazon, Brewers, Friends, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause which for this part of the year, and it's rapidly coming up on the end, is Not One More Vet, an organization dedicated to helping preserve the mental health of the veterinarians who take care of our pets. Until next time, remember, the brew is out there, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files. This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publisher of Historical Brewing Techniques, The Lost Art of Farmhouse Brewing. Purchase your copy of Historical Brewing Techniques at BrewersPublications.com. Brewers Publications.